Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown Ups Forum. I have a question for you. How many of you are ready to get to 100, age 100? So whether you're ready or not, you're in the right spot. <laughs> You'll get some valuable tips tonight. It's a privilege to introduce my two guests, thought leaders in this topic, Dr. Laura Carstensen and Mark Johnson. They'll be talking about 100 years to thrive and how to design a longer and wealthier life. And that's really what we would want. We don't want to just get to 100. We want to thrive all the way there, every step of the way. I'm sure you'll have lots of questions, and we'll have time for questions towards the end of the program. I gave you guys some cards um, to write your questions down. I can collect them and hand them over to Mark later. So please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you so much, Denise, for uh, the very kind introduction and really the privilege to speak with all of you at the Commonwealth Club tonight. Uh, thank you to those of you who joined us in person in, in San Francisco, and uh, welcome to all of you online, wherever you may be in this wonderful world of ours. Um, a great privilege to be in conversation with you this evening, uh, Laura, and I know a privilege for us to follow the uh, inspirational Jane Fonda, who spoke the other evening to the club. And uh, she is a fellow member of your Stanford Center on Longevity Advisory Council. Anything you want to say uh, about Jane, Jane? Jane rocks is what I'll say. And she sets the bar very high. So I try to bring it down a few notches yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. So big, big shoes to follow, but we'll do our best. Um, what I thought we would do is, is start with uh, our first slide. And it's this beautiful picture uh, of this newborn baby. I know you, you and I both love this tremendously. And it's a great reminder that we've all been given this one truly priceless gift, which is the gift of life. And I think as you and I will discuss tonight, uh, a better chance of living a longer and hopefully wealthier one um, than ever before in history. And the fundamental question that we ask ourselves and we ask the audience is, how do, we, how do we make the most of our gift and make the choices and investments that are truly in our control uh, to extend the game of life on our terms, to have both quality and quantity of life? Mm -hmm. And so um, I know we also want to touch at the end on how to make that opportunity more accessible and equitable mm -hmm. uh, to everyone. So that question informs your work at Stanford. I know I think deeply about it. Can you start us out with maybe just your perspective on this gift of life and how remarkably it's changed in the last century and, mm. and, and why that's happened. Yeah, as you know, a part of why I love this image is because it makes us smile. You know, you, you, you look at this young life and it's just, you think of the potential and what next and uh, what will this child be and love and do. And, and for me, I'm always kind of flashing back and putting things in historical perspective. And I think part of what makes this image so amazing is because a little over 100 years ago, that was not at all how people looked at babies. 
many parents thought of babies, their babies, as angels coming to stay, not for long, but for a while. Infant mortality was very, very high. Um, 25% of babies died before the first year. Wow. Uh, many more by the time they turned 12, and, and death was common at all ages. And so the idea that now when we look at a brand new life, we are optimistic and positive, and we're just thinking about all the things that can be, is is brand new. And, and that's because long life is brand new. Yeah, yeah. And this extra, you said 30 years of life yeah. expectancy, I mean, put that in historical context for just how much that's changed. Mm-hmm. Through most of human evolution, life was short, and I mean short. Uh, we don't know exactly what life expectancies were as we were evolving on the African plains, but the estimates go from 18 to 20. Wow. So it was really touch and go for survival of the species. You have to get old enough to be able to reproduce and hang around long enough to make sure those young ones can get old enough to be able to, to reproduce and carry on. And, and life expectancy inched up over the millennia, but at a snail-like pace. So by the Middle Ages... In Europe, life expectancy had reached the mid-30s. Many of you will know the quote, Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, 17th century philosopher, who said, described life as as nasty, brutish, and short. (laughs) And he was right. Um, Probably what I would have said at 30. (laughs) Well, sometimes it feels that way, even now, right. Um, And then by 1900 in the United States, life expectancy had reached 47. So now we're talking across millions of years. And um, by the end of a century, 1900, and by the end of that century, we had added 30 years to life expectancy. So we nearly doubled the average length of life in a century. And that is why, in my view, aging older ages feel so uncomfortable to so many people because the world we're born into is a world that was literally built by and for young people from the depth of the stairs that we climb to the social norms that tell us when to get an education, when to marry, when to retire. This was These were social infrastructures and physical environments that were designed with young people in mind. Yeah. For every good reason, that's who was alive on the on the planet. That's amazing. I mean, it it essentially just snuck up on us. It did. And yeah. People who maybe in this room today feel that same thing. So, yeah. I want to go backwards in time a little bit. You and I didn't make the baby picture cut, but um, <laughs> I know we share something uniquely in common, and our friendship has developed. A, just we were both shaped at very young ages about things that were pivotal. And mm-hmm. if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind sharing your personal story, your why about what happened when you were young and, and how that got you into this field of longevity mm-hmm. and you know, just how it informs your, your work today. Sure. Um, oh, we are all mortal. <laughs> we all know that somewhere in our minds. Uh, in fact, we were, we were aware of this through most of our lives, humans. Um, but we often don't think much about it. And uh, every once in a while, uh, something shakes us up, and we realize just how true that is, that we have a fixed time 
uh, on this planet, and we're not going to live forever. And it makes us begin to think differently about our own lives and how we're how we want to live them. And um, for me, uh, I was 21 when I got into a terrible car accident and ended up on an orthopedic ward, having broken 20-something bones, uh, for about four months. And even before that time, I should say, I I had really interesting grandparents, and I adored all of them. Mm -hmm. And on my father's side, they were like salt-of-the-earth, good-hearted, religious, upstanding people. And on my mother's side of the family, they played (laughs) poker and drank, and they were all delightful. <laughs> Good to have role models on both sides. So, so already I kind of knew that not all old people were the same. But I end up back to this orthopedic ward, um, laying in a bed on my back, that cartoonish image, you know, my leg is tied in the air uh, uh, with, with ropes. And I was there for a long time. And the nurses got to know me and thought I was relatively friendly. And they said, we're going to start putting old women in this room with you. And your job is to kind of keep them cognitively okay and, you know, entertain them and, you know, this and that. Now, of course, looking back on it, they were helping me, yes. <laughs> but, but they told me that. And um, so I began to really t- get to know the other, there was a four-bed ward, so there were always three other people in this room with me. And I got to know them, and I saw how different they were from one another. But I also saw, and I guess this was the insight for me, is how similar we were. You know, all of us were pretty much out of control of our lives. We were dependent on other people for everything, our meals, uh, bathing, um, uh, a glass of water. I mean, none of us could really do the things that we could once do. And we talked a lot about what that was like and how we were treated. And I also began to see how I was being treated in comparison to the way they were being treated. And the doctors would come in and um, spend many times during the day trying to help me and rehabilitate me and then wave goodbye to Sadie on the way out. And so I both saw how we were so similar and also how the world was treating us differently. And it began to make me wonder how much of aging is a biological process, and it is. But how much that process is shaped by the social world. And I took a course in psychology while I was in the hospital because my father's a professor and was a saint and taped course lectures and brought them to me. And so anyway, I'm studying psychology. I'm surrounded by old women and I can't move. <laughs> that was my introduction to, to, to science. Yeah. And so I left the hospital being very interested in studying aging and what that process was like. That's a very long-winded answer to a very simple question. I, I probably have an equally long-winded answer. Well, this I, is, yes. I think, uh, yeah. you know, it's always wonderful to be given that gift of perspective and then mm. a meaningful career choice was presented to you and you you walk through that door. So, I've heard pe- the saying, some people don't know that there are angels whose only job is to make sure you don't sleep through your life, uh, to shake things up. That's and, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So, But you had a, an experience early in your life that in some sense was also a reminder of 
mortality that 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 gave you uh, a very uh, personal emotional lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I was just a a teenager going through life, and I think a big transition of moving from the Midwest to California. So yeah. realizing how not cool I was when I didn't have <laughs> op shorts and yeah, things. Yeah. But, um, you know, never saw my dad sick a day in his life, and then for two weeks he was on the couch and. Mm was diagnosed with a brain tumor and six months later had died from lung cancer. And so it was uh, a big, you know, the rug being pulled out from underneath our family. Uh, My wonderful mother who still supports me is here today. um, Went back to teaching and and after 16 years of raising children and to support our family and didn't have much money or resources. Um, But I think, what it made me realize, and excuse me while I drop that clicker, is um, I got this unique gift, which mm-hmm. was, looking back on it, was truly a, a tremendous gift, mm-hmm. even though I had to lose my father to get it, of, of perspective that mm-hmm. it was time and not money or any other resource that was the most valuable thing in my life. And I realized that this hourglass that we all have, mm-hmm. none of us know exactly how much sand is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I recognized over time that it was just this priceless thing that it, it actually mm-hmm. didn't matter how much money you had. You can't buy more of it um, necessarily. You might have more access to a little bit more sand, but ultimately uh, it's just this this resource that we can spend it, we can invest it, we can give it. And often we can do all those things at the same time with a lot of intention. And I think what I recognize is by doing those things judiciously and wisely is that we can actually live longer and potentially healthier and wealthier lives. And so I lived with this tremendous dichotomy of a father who died at 52 and a grandfather who was thriving even though he was born in 1910 into his 70s and 80s and had really a a life expectancy of 50, but he seemed to be thriving in ways that I didn't experience with my own dad. So it just got me deeply reflecting on what were those things he was doing. Oh, all right. (laughs) You know, what was he doing that was different and, and how was he spending his time and what could I do differently? And I just, I just recognized that the people I observed who I wanted to be like, um, to me, didn't necessarily have the most money, um, but they were what I, I thought really embodied more well-being in a, in a wealthy life. And that just sent me on a journey of thinking deeply about that subject. So, you know, when we talk about well-being, um, it's we talk about, you know, you, you talk a lot about how hundred year lives will become more commonplace, but how do we, how do we do that and, and have a health span that aligns to our, our, our lifespan. And I think if, if you could, you know, just share with the audience what the difference in those two terms mean and, and really why, why is that so important, mm-hmm. you know, not only for every individual, but just for society as a whole. Yeah, it, it is uh, help improving our health um, into more decades of life is among the greatest challenges we face right now. So lifespan is simply a, a yardstick, a measure, 
How long do you live? We often talk about the lifespan of an organism. We don't know what it is in humans, by the way. It's, uh, we know what it is in Drosophila and fruit flies. We know what it is in earthworms, but in humans, it's yeah. still debated. But, but lifespan is the length of the time that we live. Health span is the length of our healthy lives. And today, there's a misalignment of uh, health span and lifespan. And so uh, a major challenge of, of medicine, basic biological sciences, uh, physical fitness, uh, psychology, is to help uh, extend our healthy years throughout our whole lives. That's, that's the aim. Okay. Um, and right now, just to give it some perspective, on average, and there's a lot of variability, but on average, it's about 10 years now where people are not healthy enough to function as they would like to and the end of their lives. So that's a long period of time and a, a, a real challenge uh, among many scientists today, certainly ones working at the Center on Longevity, uh, is to preserve health. Uh, into very old age. Are there things you're focused on at the center that are most impactful to that shift and, <laughs> and aligning those two things to be, I guess, more, more equivalent or I, I'm yeah. Sure that's what yeah. You know, health, um, health today, we can think, first of all, let me say, you can think about health as, um, how many diseases you have, how many diagnoses you have, uh, or you can think about functional health. Can you live on your own, pay your bills, drive a car, take care of your house, you know, be independent in the way that you want. And um, that seems to be the most important measure of health, more so than do you have high cholesterol or uh, you know, uh, hypertension or so people can have those diseases and live just fine functionally. So we look at functional health. Best predictor of functional health today is education. Uh, when we're children, it's really kind of amazing. It's such a powerful predictor what we did when we were little and then how well we're going to live in older ages. So that's one. Uh, but another one is exercise and exercise if it could be put in pill form, would be the most desired, sought-after pill uh, and probably most expensive one in the world. So write that um, down. Write that down. Keep um, it, and, and the great thing about exercise is it helps every organ system, from our brains and our ability to think, to your heart, to bone strength, muscles, all of them. And what's interesting, when you say, what are the scientists working on? Then there are geroscientists. These are basic biologists who are trying to understand how and why we age to see if we might slow those processes that happen as the years pass that put us at risk for diseases and death. It's possible that that same pathway that they're trying to discover so we can use pharmacology to alter is altered is the same pathway that exercise works through. We don't know that, but it's possible. So right now, there are people seeing if maybe they could find a way to make it easier for people to maintain their health. In the meantime, walk. <laughs> well, I think we, we see that. I mean, you mentioned your grandparents and my grandfather. I remember he taught me a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One about education was for someone who only had a high school education, being an immigrant to this country, 
he, he always taught me the most valuable card in your wallet is your library card. And he took us down to the Riverside Library um, every time we visited. And that was really meaningful. And I think he recognized that true gift that folks like Andrew Carnegie, I think, bestowed in our society. There is a study this makes me think about. Um, there's a researcher, Margie Lockman, at Brandeis University. And this observation that education early in life predicts functional health is something that's been well-documented, lots of studies. And she was wondering, is it really education? Because, first of all, as an aside, I won't go down this tangent, but nobody knows what education is, right? I mean, it's, it's not how many years you sit in a room, yeah. right? But, so, but that's how we measure it. So she thought it's, it's how stimulating people's lives are and whether they're learning. So she had a very large data set that she had access to, and she looked at functional health and people who didn't graduate from high school, but went to public lectures and reported that they read the newspaper every day. Mm. There were no differences in their functional health and people who went uh, to more years of school. Amazing. So it was your, whatever your, your, yeah. the, this lesson was was is now at least imported, supported by empirical evidence. Okay. Uh, we our brains need stimulating environments, and probably the reason that education is helping us is because it puts us on a pathway where we get a kind of a job, live in a neighborhood, a world, and pursue uh, everyday lives where we are learning and being stimulated. Well, that's what I think is so wonderful about the Commonwealth Club. That's what the Commonwealth Club, yeah, right, right. And it always is intimidating to speak with a PhD if you haven't figured out who's the least (laughs) educated up here. Uh, I I graduated from the School of Hard Knocks like my grandfather. So, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about these uh, five balls. Um, And I I keep this, you Mm -hmm. you spoke last year at our university, and I, I keep this in my home office and at my desk. And um, it's just something where I realized, you know, when you have the influence of, of older people, I heard a speaker young in my career who used a metaphor that really just resonated with me. And he said, we're all juggling these balls of life consistently. And there's too many balls and we're often dropping balls. We use that very commonly. But he said, there's, there's really only a few balls that are truly glass balls, that if you were to drop them, that they may break or they scuff and you can't repair mm. them. And it's really important in life to just pay attention to which ones are the glass balls and which ones are the rubber ones that mm. can bounce back. And I think that that really got me thinking about you know this concept of a wealthy life and well-being and what does that mean and, and you know I want to ask you your perspective because for mine you know the hypothesis was is that there were these five balls that I observed for people like my grandfather who were making better choices about his health than my dad who ended up you know being a smoker and dying at a young age um, to the social relationships that they had with their family and friends and um, having a career or just something that we meaningfully look forward to. Maybe it's raising a child at home, um, like my wife has done for our family, or uh, a hobby. And then community, which I saw the people who just to seem to be, have the richest lives and the ones with you know much of the gratitude of what they've been given. And so 
we we call this design for a wealthier life, but it was just these building blocks of of the glass balls. And I, I just would love your observation from, you know, Stanford and the, the, the research side, um, what you've observed and, you know, is there any merit to that? You won't remember this, okay. Okay. <laughs> but when Mark and I first met, uh, it was uh, a day where I was giving a talk at the Wealth Architects University, which is an event that Mark and his colleagues uh, put on every year, I believe. And so I was prepared to get up and go talk about longevity and how these changes in life expectancy, what predicts it, what do we need to do, how do we need to live our lives differently. And Mark got up to to introduce me, and he spoke about wealth architects and his beliefs and his values and the balls. And I sat there thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. He just scooped me. <laughs> you know, that's, all, that's what the research would suggest. And it was so interesting to me. And I think that's when I just knew I wanted to know you. Um, because your values are, the way you describe them, are your values that you are putting first. And I was so struck that there is scientific evidence also for those values um, that are all contributing to people's length and quality of life. So your definition of wealth is certainly not the dictionary definition of wealth and is so much richer. And it's such a important kind of uh, recasting of what uh, wealth should and could be and how people might think about it. Yeah, well, I, I want to give you credit because... I think it's it's books like yours. I, I I heard that metaphor young in my career. You know, I'd put my head down to work very hard and try to build mm-hmm. a life and a family and a business. And mm-hmm. you know, I was running fast, and and I got to the place where it was like, am I really paying attention to these glass balls? And mm-hmm. you know, do they have scuffs on them? Mm-hmm. And it's you know, looking in the mirror and saying, am I practicing what I preach? Yeah. And I I was lucky and fortunate enough to pick up Laura's wonderful book and please get a copy of <laughs> A Long Bright Future. And I read that on a sabbatical and it just, your positive spirit and spin on longevity and aging, something I was deeply afraid of because after losing my dad, I thought about my own mortality every day and was just kind of running like I had no time left in, in some ways. And you just made me pause and say, you know, are you are you working too hard? Are you not being present and so focused on the future that you're not living today? And it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy that you don't make it past 52 like your dad. And so, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about this concept of working more years with greater flexibility. And mm-hmm. career is such a centerpiece mm-hmm. in people's well-being. And again, that doesn't mean that you have to be earning money to have a career or something you look forward to every day. Um, You could be a volunteer. But your reframe in your work and just getting people to think about 100-year lifespans, you know, talk a little bit about this and the pressures that, Mm. you know, folks feel and and just what do we need to do differently in the workplace and society and, and just think differently about how we work and mm-hmm. yeah um 
the title of that book, A Long Bright Future, really came from uh, conversations that I had with my dad uh, over the years. And the as I was writing this book and just coming across these facts, we'd sit at the table occasionally and just sit and talk and talk. And remember saying, we just got 30 extra years of life. Our ancestors handed us 30 extra years of life, no strings attached. That's and it's up to us to make good use of them. But what's remarkable about humans is we're such creatures of culture. We so look to the past and what the past was like, and that's what we think the future is like, which is what makes people concerned when their parents died, for example, at early ages, or um, uh, any other kinds of changes that come up. We look to the past. It's time at this point in history for us to say what could be, how do we take these extra years and improve quality of life at all ages. So we have a great challenge of living longer lives. We need to improve health span. We need, there's a lot we need to do. But the opportunities are astounding. Um, and it's the opportunities that I'm afraid we're not paying enough attention to. Uh, most of us run through life, and myself included, boy, you know, I, uh, you know, we can talk about, you know, this, these Zen-like, you know, kind of recognizing mortality and recognizing what's important, but it's really hard to keep those front and center in our day-to-day -day lives because we tend to rush through life. And I think that's a historical phenomenon, actually reflecting history, that is, because our lives were nasty, brutish, and short, right. right? And so we did need to rush through our lives just to preserve, you know, uh, survival of the species. You know, you learn a little mate, you know, have a couple kids, hopefully stay around long enough that they can go off on their own. That was what life was like. Now we have more time to sit back and say, wow, where where should we put these years? Right. 30 extra years. And I've asked people for years now, you got 30 extra years. I told you, where, if you could put them anywhere you wanted, where would you put them? No one has ever said, I'd like to make old age longer. <laughs> <laughs> but that is what we've done implicitly. Right. That's what we've done with right. these years. So I like to think about where years could go that would improve life. And one is with work. The middle of life is so hard for so many of us because we're juggling family and communities and often uh, extended families and, and, and parents who might live far away or live closer. But there's so much we're doing and we pack it all in the middle and then we go, bingo, retirement, <laughs> leisure. We can, for the first time, and again, we didn't have this choice until 100 years ago, right? Where we could say, why not integrate education all the way through? How about leisure all the way through? And we're going to work all the way through too. But we'll work at different paces and for different numbers of hours at different times in our lives. We'll come in and out of the workforce. I like to sell, say I'm, I think people should retire early and often. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you have done this. I mean, you, you're a pioneer in this. You were doing this before people were running around spouting off about changing how people work. You took a sabbatical. Yeah, I mean, it was, I guess it was in a way a goal to say, could I actually do it? Mm -hmm. um, could our company do it? And 
it was a, a bit like walking off a cliff, to be honest. And I, I think when we work with a lot of people who do, one of your myths is work hard, retire harder, right? And now potentially that's a 40-year retirement. <laughs> to some folks who've just worked hard and harder, all of a sudden they haven't thought about what are the next 40 years, and it is this giant cliff. And so observing that, I was lucky to observe a lot of that anxiety, and I said, okay, at 44, maybe I need to walk off that cliff sooner, yeah. see if my wife actually wants me in the house, <laughs> uh, in her office. It's always a problem. Do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, my, do my kids enjoy yeah. being with me? Yeah. Um, you know, does my company even want me back? Uh, you know, things like that. But I, I, I think this, this slide, this metaphor, you know, I love these things. Yeah. It, it just really struck me that when I heard it sort of in midlife was it's just evaluating, are we, as we climb this ladder of success, are we actually on the wall that we want to be on? Mm -hmm. And so we found the benefits to our company were tremendous. It was a huge reset uh, for the person who got to leave. I was the first one off the cliff, like that first penguin. Um, you know, I got made fun of when I came back. Um, but building in redundancy in organizations, having somebody leave and, and feel recharged, having them make a meaningful commitment to come back and want mm -hmm. to be back, having the organization see that they can survive and thrive without that person. It's just so beneficial on so yeah. many levels. And I, I think, you know, I don't know what your view is on this from a societal standpoint, but I try to encourage all the colleagues that I know to either try and do it or do it for mm -hmm. their companies because there's just so many positive aspects of, of that for well-being. And when we think about an average lifespan, there's a wonderful book out now called 4,000 Weeks. And it just made me realize as I was preparing for today that you know, it was such a big deal for me to be gone for 12 weeks. And in an average lifespan of 4,000 weeks, it was just this minuscule yeah. amount of time, right? right. 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 So w what needs to change in our society you know, for this to happen? I mean, you know, what can centers like yours do to influence yeah. this more yeah. broadly? Well, we need more employers like you because a lot of this will rest on employers saying this is a good idea. Um, but there are some employers now um, doing some really innovative experiments. Microsoft in Japan decided to go to a four-day work week and look at productivity and to see how much productivity suffered. It didn't. Um, but by Japan, the way, Japan. in Japan, they had, they had to lock the doors, though, because <laughs> the employees were trying to come back in. And they, no, no, four days. Really? Yeah. Um, but productivity did not decline. And they're all kind of organization, business level anecdotes at this point in time. But I don't know of any that has done this experiment where productivity declined. Now, there must be some. I'm not saying it wouldn't and it's going to vary. But um, I, I think our models of work are bad ones. You know, we, we have these norms where the more you work, uh, the more people praise you, you know, you walk around and go, oh, I'm so busy, I'm just booked for that. And everybody goes, oh, wow, you must be really great and important. And it's kind of like, hmm. Um, <laughs> it's not, there's some evidence that if you work past 40 hours, I think is the number, your productivity goes way down. And that actually when people work a little bit less and then come back, so we work more intermittently through maybe a week or a month, 
that will be more productive. So we've never really tested these assumptions. We've just, you know, well, it was Henry Ford who said we should have, you know, 40-hour work week, yeah. you know. But, and that was arbitrary, you know, at the time. And, um, and also a reduction in what people were working prior to that time. But it's, it's not established that that's the best way to work. And I would like to see us starting to do a lot more research on work. What is optimal? What helps? How long should the sabbaticals be? Should they be for people who just entered the workforce? Should they be for training, for learning, for going back to school? There's so many questions yeah. that we don't know. The one thing we do know is we work really badly in this country. We work harder than just about any other industrialized nation, developed nation, and we're exhausted. And people think they want to retire because we work so badly. You know, it's just too much. But then you retire, and then about it's about a year later. About a year people like retirement. I think that's because it's about their sabbatical so, length, yeah. right? Yeah. And then people start to go, mm, you know, what, what do I do? What, what? And so we could pace ourselves is what I think. And, and you know, you look at a 100-year life, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We need to move to the marathon model. Yeah. Is ageism a real thing? I, I was at a talk yesterday about you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and just the various forms of discrimination and ageism mm -hmm. came up. So for those who maybe want to work longer years, is, is, that, is that possible? Is there you know, any findings that you well, have about that? And I want to know where you were because ageism rarely does come it up. It does. And <laughs> when we talk about diversity and equity. There's a Berkeley inclusion. professor uh, was okay. presenting. So. <laughs> An old one? <laughs> No, no, she was young, but. <laughs> People usually don't think about age in that way as, as part of diversity. Um, but of course it is. Ageism is, is certainly real. <laughs> you, if you ask people in the workforce over 50, have you ever experienced ageism? <laughs> like the numbers are overwhelming. Um, so people perceive that they are. Now you never really know, you know, somebody, you could get fired and say it's ageism, but really it's not, you know, or something like that. So we don't know. Um, but we, we know that if people lose their job in their fifties, they're far less likely to get rehired than people who are younger. Yeah. Uh, we know that, well, here's one thing. We, we know that people casually and openly talk about, say, rationing health care <laughs> as a function of age. Can you imagine doing that as a function of gender or race or, you know? And it's like the value of a life, it comes back to what our earlier <laughs> remarks, is the value of a life how, much, how many years you have left, or is, is there another yardstick about value and, and, and what life is about? So, yeah, we have ageism, and it's a major problem. I think in the workplace, it's going to get lots better real fast for one reason. We don't have enough workers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk talk about that because I think in your book you say by 2030 with the boomers who started in 2011 that there will be more over 65 than under 15 for the first time ever mm -hmm. and you know just what's what's the impact of that for society and the workplace. Yeah. Um yeah, and those people who are in their 60s and 70s are healthier than people in their 60s and 70s 50 years ago, too. So what does it mean for a society, for people to say, you reach a certain age, and now 
younger workers are going to pay for you not to work even though you're perfectly capable of working yourself. There's something wrong there too, uh, related to ageism, right? I mean, it's still about, you know, we're, we're attributing to chronological age um, uh, both uh, liabilities and advantages that aren't necessarily merited at all. Right. So we need to re rethink that. I think age diversity, especially, the United States has a remarkably even distribution of age now in the population. We have as many five-year-olds as 65-year-olds. Wow. There are countries in the world, Japan, Singapore, uh, many European countries, where they are top-heavy with older people, many more old people than young ones and workers. And ours is fairly even, which is a great asset. It's more of a rectangle than a yeah. pyramid, yeah. And, you know, it's something we've never had. That's a resource we've never had in human history. I like to say to people recently, if you, if you were going to get to be, to, to create your own population, you could have as many five-year-olds, you get to design it. Would you have almost all little children and very few adults? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say, think Lord of the Flies. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> or maybe would you have... A lot of middle-aged, a lot of young ones, a lot of adolescents, a lot of older ones. That actually looks a lot better. And we just need to be able to think creatively about age diversity as an asset. I have no doubt it is. Well, I 100% agree. We'll, we'll probably wrap up with the concept <laughs> of perspective and age. But, you know, one of the things when we think about work is if we're going to have potentially 100-year lives, how do, we, mm -hmm. how do we talk about and transition to, to building financial security to be able to live that long? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I see that very clearly in, mm -hmm. in our work. And you know, talk about just from your perspective, and then I can give you, you know, mine yeah, if you want it. But yeah. it's um, just what are some of the risks of you know, these 100-year lifespans? And mm -hmm. what, what are you seeing or what's the research showing? Um, because this is also kind of where it comes back to an, an equity conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are risks and uh, there are real opportunities, of course, there too. If we think of it in terms of financial security, it's, uh, you know, running out of money is a risk. Compound interest. Now, there's, a, <laughs> there's an idea that would work for us, you know, in long-lived societies. Um, but of course there are, there are, there are lots, there are both, but working longer is going to help people build financial security. Yeah. Again, the model of I'm going to work for 40 years and then not work for 30, that does not work for most people. Uh, it's, it, they can't save enough and to, to be able to do that. And governments can't afford to do that. We are now facing a, a real a uh, generational equity question in our country when 40% of the budget is paying for Social Security and Medicare. And I'm not saying it's easy. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> very reluctant to say we're going to make big changes here to these systems that people have counted on and paid into. But it is an issue in an age-diverse society, and we need to rethink how we're going to address those things. One, one other advantage of financial security is what we're seeing in this slide, and that is... Older generations, not the parents, but the grandparents and the great-grandparents, investing in the young ones' financial security from very early on. And that's a model that really um, can uh, be tremendously uh, uh, beneficial to the, to the youngest ones. And uh, again, let compound interest 
work on, on, on a gift that was given by someone at the birth of a child, and that's, that's going to go a long way. So we need to think about that and how it changes. We need to get away from the model of bequests. Most family giving happens after one person dies who's holding a lot of money, and then, then well, it may not be the thing to do in 100-year lives, you know, if you've got to wait till you're 80 to inherit right. the family farm right. Right. <laughs> from your 100-year-old uh, uh, parent. That, that doesn't work either. So we probably need to think about ways to be more fluid within families, within communities, other kinds of associations, uh, shared financial risk, annuities, things like this are, are important to think about. Yeah. You're the expert here. What what do you think about financial security and longer lives? Well, to all the younger members watching, I'm counting on you to pay my social security at some point. Um, but I would <laughs> so say, sorry. I would say I, I I assume you would agree, but I would expect that with increasing lifespans, that the social security normal retirement age will continue to to go up uh, for it to be a, a sustainable program. I, I think. You know, the, the biggest thing for me is just this this concept mm -hmm. of, of what is enough. And I think, first of all, deciding, you know, in these these glass balls or the foundation of our life, what is what is the amount of money we actually need mm -hmm. to have security and really thinking the first step in that is is planning and thinking. And that's what the gift you've given through the center is this new map of life is, is letting people know that a hundred year lifespan is possible and, and beyond. So for us, it's, it's when we do financial planning and saying to someone, we're going to model this out to age a hundred. And they look at us cross-eyed, like, are you kidding? We're like, no, we're not kidding. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's really making sure we're prepared to have, you know, three, four decade life retirements that we need the assets to support that. And then I think, you know, the second question is, is just how do we think about risk? How are mm -hmm. we defining risk? Are we defining risk as just volatility of our money or are we defining risk as mm -hmm. actually the purchasing power of our money? Mm -hmm. You know, if we had a million dollars and 30 years from now, we basically had 3% inflation and we stuck that money, you know, in a very low yielding bank account, and we're very secure from a volatility standpoint, we would have less than half of our money left from a purchasing power standpoint. Mm -hmm. 40 years, it's a third. So it's a, it's a real risk that mm -hmm. we, we need to think about and we need to understand. And that was a gift I learned from my grandpa who I you know, mm -hmm. sort of put in the slide is like, where do you want to invest? Because in many ways, what you said, um, when my mother and her sister lost their husbands within six months of each other. We actually all grew up together. And, and my grandfather, who grew up in the Depression, never had a high school education, but accumulated resources by being patient and mm -hmm. compound interest, he was able to provide a financial stability to our family that wouldn't have existed if he wasn't in the equation. I do worry a little bit about the generational aspect of you know, that generation grew up in the depression versus the boomers versus gen x versus i mean everyone's shaped differently by their their money narrative and and mm -hmm. i think the that money narrative the last piece for me is just really encouraging people to have conversation about this if you're a young person ask your parents or grandparents how did they do it because you'll learn one some great lessons and number two you'll also learn if they haven't 
thought about it and it could become a financial problem for you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're older, I encourage you to actually have a conversation with the younger generation because you're going to relieve a lot of anxiety for them about what is your financial picture and mm-hmm. is it their problem or will they potentially mm-hmm. you know, have some resources that they can count on? And I, I think what you said is really, mm-hmm. really smart. I mean, it's making sure it's always aligned with our value system and what are we trying to promote mm-hmm. down at the bottom of this foundation? But you know, where where do we want to invest not just our money but our time? Mm-hmm. And and I think conversation is really important because it, it helps educate mm-hmm. both sides um, as we we go through these hundred year lifespans. Mm-hmm. I agree. It, it's also important to to for us all to recognize the historical periods into which we're born have a lot to do with our financial security too. So there's a lot of kind of sneering at young people today, millennials, and so maybe aren't saving enough money or aren't making it. Well, if you don't have enough money to pay your rent, you know, and you're living in a city like San Francisco, for example, or it's really hard uh, to, to, and you're, if you're struggling in that way, even if you have the right values it's hard to make that work. And other eras, other historical eras where housing markets were going up and thriving and people could invest and they, you know, and so on, made it easier for people to get ahead. So I think we have to also have a, uh, be, be kind of sober, sober and forgiving of different cohorts Absolutely. and what they were able to do. And your, your, your comments also just make me think of the importance of family wealth. Um, most people today, most young people who are buying houses, almost all of them, I don't, I forget the exact percentage, but when you ask people in their 30s and 40s if they're homeowners, and then you say, who paid for that down payment? Uh, it was parents, it was family, it was grandparents, it was someone else who's, who's helping them. And it's fantastic for younger generations when you've got people standing behind you who are ready to help you. But we should also recognize not all of those young people have families behind them who can and are willing or even exist to help give them that leg up. So we, we do need to think about it uh, from lots of different perspectives, I think. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I think you and I both are just huge proponents of, of making this gift of longevity and a wealthier life more accessible and equitable. And I, the biggest thing for me is just financial education mm-hmm. going downstream to younger generation, because yeah. as an example for myself, you know, you don't think about money. I was fortunate not to have to until all of a sudden it's thrown on me that, yeah. you know, there isn't any, right. And how many yeah. people just live in those situations. Um, so mm-hmm. we need to figure out how to get this into our schools and teach mm-hmm. kids how to actually balance a checkbook. And I mean, everyone throughout all different generations will be better off for more fiscal mm-hmm. prudence, mm-hmm. I think, overall, yeah. r- rather than this just big credit card we all consider to run yeah. up. Yeah. Um, so let's let's shift a little bit to just this. Uh, I love this slide. And. Your uh, the energy and the curiosity of youth combined with the wisdom, wisdom and life experience uh, mm-hmm. of you know the generations that are older, um, it creates opportunities for families, you know, friends and, and workplaces. And I, I love something you wrote about in your book, which you said your dad told you when you're a baby, there's very it's very difficult to differentiate. But when, as you age, everyone has this journey and this river of life that they go down that's so unique that, mm-hmm. you know, they have this, this perspective. So how do, how do, we, how do we harness that um, 
what do you think is important when you look at mm -hmm. something like this, you know, for the audience to take in and yeah. yeah. And why are just why are you so optimistic about the impact of that, which is one of the things I love about you is that you're so optimistic about. Oh, what's not to be optimistic about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our ancestors solved the problem of premature death, and that's what we're that's the gift we have now to to live with. Uh uh, that were surviving, but yeah, my dad would, and and my he, he I've already called him a saint once, but he was a wonderful one guy, wonderful father, wonderful to kids. I mean, great, except babies. He thought were kind of boring, <laughs> and he basically said, you know, they're all the same. <laughs> and you know, he's right. I often say, you know, if we brought two six-month-old babies up here, and we could all make predictions about what they could do and not do. What would make them cry? What would make them laugh? You know, we could we make these predictions. You bring two 80-year-olds up here. <laughs> you know, one, one could be the wisest person on the planet and the other one could be demented. And there's lots, there's so much variability. And this is actually a very core finding in the studies of aging across basic biology all the way to psychology, that the older the group is that you're studying, the more variability in that group. And some people even call adult development the process of differentiation. We all become increasingly, and this really starts in childhood from those babies, right? We become increasingly less like one another and more like ourselves over time. And probably one of the, the, the uh, uh, an important insight to have is, if you think about that, how do you want to be differentiated? What are you as a person when you're in your 20s aiming for? What kind of a great grandma do you want to be? Right. And we've not had that question asked in previous generations. One of the greatest compliments I ever got was when my then three-year-old granddaughter went into my closet at the house and said, I want to dress up like a grandma. Nice. <laughs> and I thought, I never said that yeah. when I was a kid. You're very <laughs> But we do have now these, these ideas, and I think we need to start asking kids those questions, by the way. Not just what do you want to be when you grow up, but then what do you want to be? <laughs> yeah. And what do you want to be after you have your children are old and in college? What do you want to be then? Because that's going to help them create those kinds of stories and scripts that they can, will get them thinking about the future and how they want to prepare and what kind of person they want to be. Yeah. I don't know if I was just so influenced by losing a, a parent that I've, I just love this equation that I use almost every time I, I speak to a group because, you know, we all get the experience. I think a lot of us miss the reflection part, but ultimately there's just so much wisdom mm -hmm. from, you know, those 80 year olds in the, in the room. And we just, we just don't ask the questions. And, and that's the part I, I don't quite get, yeah. but you know, in our society, how important is this role of just family and the multi-generational family and community, um, you know, to a, a, a longer and healthier mm. and wealthier life, in your opinion? And, you know, you know, I think the presence of elders, if you will, uh, help people of all generations know who they are, where they came from, uh, where they're headed. Uh, there's a, a, a famous story about an anthropologist who goes to a remote village 
and there is an elder storyteller in the village and everybody sits around, you know, at the feet of the elder and listens to a story each evening. And, and the anthropologist says to them, you know, there are these boxes, they're called televisions, and they've got infinite numbers of stories. And he brings television sets to the village, gets electricity wired in, and a month later he comes back and everybody's watching TV. <laughs> and about a year later, anthropologist comes back again and all the TVs are off in a big pile somewhere and they're sitting around listening to the elder tell the stories. And the anthropologist says, hey... <laughs> There were even more stories, you know, in those boxes. What happened? You know, what happened? And they said, "Oh, yeah, we know the story. The, the 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 boxes have a lot of stories, but our storyteller knows us." And boy, does that change the story uh, when the storyteller knows what you need, where you are at your stage in life. It's huge. So having older relatives who have known us since the day we were born and watched us grow up and grow old is so powerful. Uh, we know from a literature on learning that tutoring is a much more effective way to teach than it is in a classroom. And it's kind of the same. You know, does the elder know you? Does the teacher know you and what you need and where you are? And so having those people in our lives is, is really important and becomes increasingly important to who we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you study blue zones around... You know, the world, and this is a big topic or term, and I don't know how, how you feel about it necessarily, but, I mean, just that role of, of community. And I, I see mm -hmm. that what I, you know, the research, there's a wonderful book called Wellbeing that yeah. was Gallup, and for me it was very validating because it was their research around the world that said those five elements of our life are really what make people thrive. Mm -hmm. And... 60% of people are thriving in each one of those areas, but only 7% around the world are thriving in all five at the same time in that balance. But community was the one thing that they said is the difference between a good life and a great life. Mm. And it does often what keeps a lot of these you know, folks living mm -hmm. well into their 80s, 90s, and 100s. I mean, do you agree with that? What, what's your... So I like the idea, the concept of the blue zones, because I think the conclusions are all supported by evidence. Mm -hmm. I, an economist recently published a paper where he looked at the blue zones very carefully and found that they were places where there was very poor record keeping of births. Oh, geez. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so, so it's not exactly clear. You know, there are an awful lot of places in the world where we don't really know how old sure. people are. And then they tend, as they get older, to say they're older. than. We, but let's put that aside right. and just say the conclusions. And the, the idea of community being incredibly supportive just makes so much sense because in some ways it's like an annuity, right? It's, yeah. it's a shared resource and things go wrong. People we love die. Um, uh, marriages fall apart. Uh, kids leave home. Uh, things happen. And putting all your eggs in any one basket is risky. And so having a community around you uh, where you've got people and friends and um, even people who don't know you very well, but when you go for a walk, you know, in the morning and you're walking around, your neighbor says hi. You don't even know the neighbor's name, but you know you see that and you get a smile. That makes us feel like we belong somewhere. Yeah. 
and a sense of belonging is is central to good mental health. Absolutely, which I think is su- supporting these life transitions, yeah. right? Is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So I know we've got some questions, and I I just want to give you a chance, and we can talk for the audience that just having frameworks to think about mm-hmm. hundred year lives and longer and wealthier lives. I know both of us have kind of put together things that we think are helpful. Can you just quickly touch on the new map of life and your work at Stanford and just where people can access that, mm-hmm. what that is. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll say a minute about the design for a wealthier life process, but okay, I want to make sure, sure. we get to, to questions. Yeah. Um, my colleagues and I at Stanford have been thinking a long time about different ways to live our lives and how we need to change the way we think about long life. Um, and it feels very fragmented, or it did. Um, we focused a lot in the early years at the Longevity Center on three domains. Uh, we called it mind, mobility, and money. <laughs> Said those are three legs of a stool. If you could strengthen all of them, we'd be good to go. And um, we realized a couple of things over the years, and that was every time we tried to work in one, it turned out it was related to the other two. <laughs> you know, if you're not functionally healthy, it's hard to have money. It's hard to have good mental, you know, and they were always connected. But we kept focusing on these three areas, mostly because people kept saying to us and, and to me, I always hear this voice in my head says, Laura, you can't boil the ocean. And after about, it takes me a long time, I'm slow, but about 10, 15 years later, I woke up one day and I said, we need to boil the ocean, <laughs> with apologies to the climate scientists. But, but the metaphor, we do need to change it all. We can't say people are going to work longer but not change education. We can't say we're going to change education without changing health and access and, and early life. We, we need to think about longer lives from the very beginning all the way through. And the aim, ultimately, in the new map of life is to say, how do we live life and design new models of life where people have a sense of belonging, purpose, and worth at every stage of life. So that's the goal of this. And I won't belabor the specific insights uh, that we identify there, um, but you can access the New Map of Life report at the Stanford Center on Longevity, and I urge you to read it. There's a long version that very, very long, and then there's yeah, a shorter wonderful. version. Wonderful, uh, wonder, wonderful folks. Make some insights. Yeah, I work with amazing people. This is it ties into one of the questions, and what what are the departments that are at Stanford that are involved with the the center and your work, and and then mm-hmm. just someone also ask how can they participate? Is there any way for them to mm. participate? Wow, thank you. Um, it's harder for me to say what departments are not involved. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, so we it's are. Holistic. Yeah, we're a multidisciplinary center at Stanford, and we're actually one of internally we're called it one of we're one of eighteen independent labs. So that means we don't reside within a school. So we're not in medicine, humanities, and sciences, law, engineering, but rather we draw from all of those schools, uh, graduate students, faculty. Uh, researchers who work with us on different projects. So all seven schools at Stanford have faculty members who are affiliated with the Center on Longevity, which is what makes it so exciting and interesting uh, to to us. For getting involved, there are lots of things we do. We run a book club each month. Uh, We uh, have many convenings on campus. We try to make many of them available remotely, virtually, so that people can access. Go to our website and you'll see there's a newsletter that you can get. 
And then, you know, reach out to us if there's something specific that um, you're interested in. We are, as you know, Mark, ready to gear up. We've been building momentum over the last year and have convinced the administration, we think, um, to say let's take longevity to another level and really increase our impact, uh, our outreach uh, convenings, uh, uh, supportive students and training. And so we're at a point where we really do need input and help in many, many different ways. Yeah. And would they just contact you through the, the center and what would be the yeah, best way? Yeah. I do? often don't know the answers to many questions, but um, if anyone writes to me, I will get it to the right person at the center. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, there's one question and I want to just, and one last question. If anyone else has one, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, someone asked about investment tips for someone under 40. I guess I'll, I'll try and take you that. Do you want to do that one? Um, <laughs> I would say the, the first thing is just start early and often, both with planning and investing in this concept of, and, and I just think there are great resources like companies like Vanguard who can help. Um, at a very, very low cost to access just the public markets. And we very much believe that, you know, one of the lessons I learned from my grandfather was just that power of compound interest and faith and patience and nothing mm -hmm. happens overnight. Um, and how do you deal with a work environment taking over your life and personal time? Um, I can talk to you afterwards <laughs> about that. But um, Go work I, for Mark. He'll give you a sabbatical. Well, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think you have a choice and I think one of the things that I just really emphasize, I guess in our, this is our process, the design for a wealthier life is what we want people to know is that at the foundation, the bottom of, of this process is the most important and your career is one of the most important things in your well-being. It's what you spend most of your waking hours doing. And so really believing in something, a, a company's purpose, your purpose in terms of what you're contributing to is deeply impactful. And I would say, um, take time, a wonderful book called Range about how it takes people a long time to build a range of skills, mm -hmm. but just even finding, we got very lucky in finding something we were deeply passionate about, very young, yeah. but that can be a process that's a lifetime process. Um, but in a hundred year life, you have 60 years that's left to right. go potentially. So <laughs> let's, let's just wrap up with, um, this concept of, you know, perspective and, and just, I think I love this because I think so much of getting older is the perspective we have. And you, you know, always say that older people often are happier than younger ones. Um, but this concept of enough mm -hmm. and in Silicon Valley with so much affluence and mm -hmm. so many people who have so much that how do we make this goal of longer lifespans and health spans more equitable and accessible to all? And, you know, I'll, I'll give you the final word on that, mm -hmm. but it's one of the reasons I've joined you in this, in this work, because I am just deeply passionate about that. So we just have a minute. Um, One minute. If you could oh. say something very wise. An equitable world. <laughs> <laughs> One minute. Well, I'm going to put this in historical perspective again. What our ancestors did in the 20th century to grant us these 30 extra years of life was to make scientific technological discoveries and make sure they were distributed to everyone in the population. 
So it was medical advances that led to vaccinations and inoculations, but community-wide programs that got everybody vaccinated. It was discovery of electricity that then led to a refrigeration, and with electricity in every household, the refrigeration, the safety of the entire food supply went up. Agricultural technology that provided food, I'm just gonna talk really fast to get through a minute, (laughs) foods throughout the year. These were all discoveries and advances that were distributed deeply into the population. Everybody got them and everybody improved. Public education was put in place in every state in the nation so all children could learn how to read and write, not just the privileged few. That's what led to this. Today, one of the greatest risks of longevity is that we focus on the top 10% and we help them live even longer than ever. And we forget about the 90%. And I, if we do, our children and grandchildren are going to live in worlds that we wouldn't want them to live in. We, we need a better world. We need all hands on deck. We need all those kids becoming whatever they uh, want to be and to achieve. And so we have to find ways to improve the world and improve health span, improve longevity that get to everybody, that are accessible to everybody, or we fail. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. That's wonderful, and I think a great way to, to finish. And, and I would just say, you know, we all have this unique gift of life, um, the ripple that we can make by how we, we spend and invest our time can make a huge difference. I'm extremely grateful for making your friendship and the work that you're doing and giving us all a beautiful perspective on a, a long, bright future. I want to thank all of you for being with us this evening, and it's been a real pleasure to be with all of you, so thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for all you did. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.